You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Acts. Here's Nate. Well, many believe that the conversion of Saul or Paul to Christianity is the most important event since Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Luke, in the book of Acts, records it at three separate moments, three separate times. And uh, this is preparatory for the book of Acts. Uh, The gospel is ready now to go to the Gentile world, and so Luke is going to record for us the conversion of Paul, who would be the man who brought the gospel to the Gentile world. Of course, Peter would be the one to preach the gospel for the first time to Gentiles, but once that was established, uh, that God was willing to work with Gentiles without them converting to Judaism, Paul would then be really the, the machine that God would use to bring the gospel to the major city centers in the modern world at his time. So uh, we have here in Acts chapter 9 the record for the first time of this conversion of Paul the Apostle. So it says in chapter 9, verse 1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So, as I mentioned already, we are picking up his story once again. And, of course, this is not the first time that Luke has mentioned Saul. He gave us a short precursor to this man's life when he mentioned that at the martyrdom of Stephen, Saul was there holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen to death, and he, and he consented, actually. He records for us his death. And now here we find him, years later, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So this connects us back to the end of Acts chapter 7 and the beginning of Acts 8, where Saul was first mentioned. And he still is doing the same thing uh, that he was found doing there, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, we also learn here in verse 1 and 2, that uh, he had received letters from the high priest and uh, to go to Damascus in Syria to continue persecuting the church. And so what this helps us understand is that the persecution is spreading. Uh, This is, it seems, a sort of religious extradition from Damascus, probably empowered and backed by Roman authority, under the high priest's control. So Paul went and got these letters so that he could extradite Christians in Damascus, bring them back to Jerusalem and uh, put them, you know, on trial there and, and deal with them and persecute them in that kind of way. So he's going to go to the synagogues, of course, because Christianity is still closely tied to Judaism at this point. The church is not yet broken away fully from it. So he would go to the synagogues there. Now, as he went on his way, and I've actually stood on a mountaintop overlooking the desolate 
highway that Paul would have had to travel to get to Damascus. I remember looking at it and just thinking to myself, his hatred for the church was so strong that he would be willing to travel this great distance to put a stop to Christianity. There was just something in his heart that was just driving him mad, I think, with hatred for the church. So it says that as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul laid out a list of people who had seen the risen Christ. And at the tail end of that list, he said in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So when Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15 8, the question is, well, when did Jesus appear? to Paul as the last of all, one untimely born. And you'd have to say that it's right here on the road to Damascus. And not only does he hear a voice, but he seems to have seen to some degree or another the Lord as well. Now, it's fascinating to see how Jesus connected himself to the persecution of his people. He said, first, why are you persecuting me? And then he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And of course, as Paul was persecuting the church, he did not see himself as persecuting a literal, physical Jesus, but Jesus connected himself to the suffering of the church. So he's identifying with the church in their persecution. We are, after all, Ephesians 5, verse 30, members of, of his body. Jesus said in Matthew 25 verse 44 and 45 that when someone is hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and we minister to them, he says when you do it to the least of these, you did it to you do it to me. So the Lord was connecting to his people and suffering right along with his people. Now, the answer that Jesus gives to him is fascinating. He doesn't say it here in in chapter 9, but later when Paul testifies of this same event in Acts chapter 26, he tells us that one of the things the Lord said is that you are kicking against the goads. So Stephen's message, I think, from Acts chapter 7 was just resonating with, with Paul's heart. And it seems also that not only was Stephen's message just sort of like a ghost whispering in Paul's ear, you know, you rejected Moses and you rejected uh, Joseph and, and you thought that the temple was a place that was, could house the living God. But in all of these things, God had to correct you. You were, you were wrong at the first count. And Abraham, he didn't immediately obey and go to the promised land. He delayed in his obedience. And, and, and Stephen's whole message there in Acts 7 was to say, religious leaders have been making mistakes about God's revealed will from the very beginning, the plan of God and the people of Israel, starting with Abraham. So if that is true 
in the past and was corrected later, so it is here. You are you are have crucified the Messiah. You need to turn and repent. You, you've rejected the very one that you should have received. And I think that that message was, you know, stirring within Paul's heart at this moment. But also, it's interesting, Paul says in Romans chapter 7 that the way that he came to Christ was through ruminating on the law that said, you shall not covet. And when that got inside of his mind and heart, he realized that the law was spiritual and that he was carnal and sold unto sin. He realized that there was nothing that he could do about the covetousness inside of his heart. There were certain marital laws that he could keep and certain external things that he could keep, but he started realizing that the law was more than mere externals and something that was had to do with the heart when he meditated upon the law that said, you shall not covet. And when he saw that, all of this mixed together just made him ripe for this appointment, this meeting, this vision from Jesus. So the Lord speaks to him. The men, verse 7, who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. A Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So the men who were there, they heard the voice, uh, but when Paul tells the testimony again in chapter 22, he makes it clear that even though they heard it, they didn't understand it. It was unintelligible to them. It was just like thundering. It was like a sound, but they, they couldn't understand what was actually being said. And so uh, Paul here, he's now without sight, and he, for three days, does not have sight, and he neither eats nor drinks. It was uh, just a, a, a result of the massive thing that just happened to him. I just can't even eat. I can't even drink. And uh, this is just a very powerful moment uh, in this man's life. And I think at this point, he is a full-on believer because he is asking the Lord at this point, who are you? And the other accounts of this make clear, what do you want me to do? Now, there was a disciple, verse 10, Damascus, named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain Uh, his sight. So here the Lord approaches this disciple in Damascus, the target city of Paul, uh, named Ananias. Now, obviously, this is not the Ananias of Acts chapter 5 because uh, the Lord judged him with death uh, for his hypocrisy. Uh, This is a different Ananias. And uh, it's interesting because he's called a disciple. So here in Acts, we've seen apostles, Uh, In chapter 6, we've seen deacons, or at least the first iteration of deacons, and now we see disciples, just everyday believers who are walking with the Lord. And this everyday believer is going to be used in this beautiful way in Paul's life. All of this was very important, the way that Paul got saved, because uh, he had to clearly receive his ministry directly from the Lord. And 
this is what Jesus is reiterating or announcing to Ananias. You know, he's seen in a vision, and here's the thing that I need to show this man. So Ananias, verse 13, answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Again, part of the reason that all of this is so important is because Jesus himself is directly putting a call upon Paul's life. He received it directly from Jesus, directly from the Lord. And it wasn't Peter or John or any other apostle who came and laid hands on him and affirmed his ministry. It was just an everyday believer named Ananias who went and announced these things to him. It was a direct line, Jesus to Paul. It wasn't Jesus to Peter, then to Paul. It was just Jesus and to Paul. The early church had no idea about any, you know, special succession of grace that flowed from the apostles like Roman Catholicism or Greek, uh, the Greek Orthodox Church would teach today. Uh, they just simply believed that there's Jesus and then there's the church, and he deals directly with us. He is our chief shepherd. Now, obviously, we have a special relationship with the word that the apostles wrote, but it's because we're receiving that not necessarily just as the apostolic word, but as the word from Jesus that he gave to us through his apostles. But, you know, once they were dead and gone, uh, that special relationship with the writing of scripture, it ceased, it ended for us as a church. So we love to go back to their writings, of course, is what we're doing right now in looking at the book of Acts. But this is very important for everyone to understand. Paul was directly called by Jesus. And he had a very specific ministry. He he was called there to carry the name of Jesus before the Gentiles, which would be the bulk of Paul's ministry, and kings, number two, and he would appear before magistrates and rulers, uh, leaders throughout the Roman Empire, and the children of Israel. Part of Paul's ministry would be to bring the gospel to the Jewish people as well, but it would end up being a ministry that was widely rejected while the Gentile world received him in some beautiful ways. So Jesus gave to Paul this handcrafted mission. And Paul had been handcrafted by God for that mission. Uh, He later said in Galatians chapter 1 that he had been set apart before he was born and called by God's grace. Because when you think about Paul, he was perfect for this mission. You know, he knew scripture backwards and forwards as he grew up in Tarsus. Was a Jew, of course, so he could speak to the Jew first and then to the Greek as well. But he had a full Roman citizenship, which would be very helpful for him in traveling throughout the empire and uh, receiving better treatment when in prison, you know, things like that. And because he'd grown up in Tarsus, he could fit into many different cultures, Jewish and Greek, which was different from men like Peter and John, who were very uncomfortable in the Greek or the Gentile world. And even his secular trade, making tents, as we'll see when we get to Acts chapter 18, and his singleness, being an unmarried man, were useful to God. 
So God had handcrafted Paul for this work, and we might ask the question, what has God handcrafted me for as well? But the primary thing that we should see here is that Paul had a ministry to the Gentile world. And, uh, of course, we see that play out through the rest of the book of Acts and also the writings of Paul the Apostle. He was dealing with not a Jewish Christianity, but a, a worldwide, uh, every tribe, nation, and tongue version of Christianity. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Okay, now this is this is powerful uh, because here we have Ananias, again, just this common Christian, laying his hands on Paul, or Saul, which would be his Jewish name, and announcing to him that the Lord wanted him to regain his sight and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. After receiving his sight, the assumption, of course, is that he's now filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he's baptized. So the order of events in Paul's conversion life is just all jumbled around. He gets saved on the road to Damascus, the Spirit of God living inside of him. Ananias prays for him, and then the Spirit fills him, you know, comes upon him to empower him and aid him for ministry. And then after that, he's baptized as a believer and as a Christian. So just marvelous to think about that order. And, uh, you know, Paul... He needed the Spirit's power and aid. Now, immediately, verse 20, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? So, Immediately, Paul went, and I love the way it says it there in verse 20, proclaimed Jesus. That is the right thing, the right person to proclaim. We don't just have a program to give to people. We have a person. We have the person of Jesus Christ. And he was declaring to the synagogues, he is the Son of God. That's the only occurrence of this phrase in, in the book of Acts. But Saul, verse 22 increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. I mean, you could just imagine the intellect of Paul and, and the way that he could speak and deal with the Jewish mindset and all the scriptures that he knew that he, you know, that came together for him at his conversion. And when many days had passed, verse 23, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, this would become prototypical, in a sense, of Paul's relationship with the Jewish contingent that he would preach to. At this point, he's not yet preaching to the Gentile world. It's exclusively Jewish at this point. P Peter has not yet preached to Cornelius' Gentile audience. So 
But this rejection from the Jews of Paul would become rather normative throughout the whole book of Acts. He would continually go to the Jew first and also to the Greek, but he'd also continually be rejected by the Jew first. And then when he went to Jerusalem, eventually a very similar kind of thing would happen where they would actually take a vow, a group of them, to kill Paul, that they they didn't want to eat or drink until Paul was dead. So he became a target of Jewish persecution, and that is first seen there in Damascus, where they actually had to lower him in a basket so that he could. Now this, for Paul, actually became a symbol of the pinnacle of his suffering. When he wrote to the Corinthian church about all of the humbling things that had happened in his life, the beatings and the shipwrecks and the stripes and the imprisonments and the hunger and thirst and the nakedness, when when he gave that long list of all the hardships that he'd endured for the cause of Christ, one of the final things that he mentioned is he said this. He said, at Damascus, the governor under Aratus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. This was apparently one of the most humbling events in Paul's entire ministry life, and it happened right there at the beginning. Rejected, unable to be effective with the Jews in the synagogue, actually having to be put into a basket and lowered over uh, through an opening in the wall in order to escape with his life. This was just so embarrassing to Paul that he could not be fruitful amongst the Jewish people there in Damascus. Now, when he had come to Jerusalem, verse 26, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, verse 27, took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Praise God for Barnabas. Uh, He'll later be the one who invites Paul into ministry in the city of Antioch. But here we see him believing in Paul, encouraging Paul and defending Paul before the rest of the brothers there in Jerusalem. Now, It's difficult to patch together the timeline of events in Paul's life at this time, but he may have gone to Jerusalem after a three-year stint in the Arabian desert after being lowered down from the wall of Damascus, which would make sense. He was such a prominent figure in Judaism. He received Christ. They wanted to kill him. So to flee into the desert for a time seems to make sense. And then to go to Jerusalem, probably for about 15 days, when you read Galatians uh, chapter 1, and then later to go to Tarsus for a period of years, and then finally to Antioch. So it is probable that Paul had about 12 or 13 or even 14 years of Uh, Christianity, of being a believer, before he really began to do public ministry uh, there in Antioch. So, verse 28, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Again, there's that 
portion of Paul's early Christian life back in his hometown in Tarsus uh, for for some years before he's invited by Barnabas back to Antioch to begin serving the Lord. So the church throughout all Judea and Samaria and Galilee had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So this is the third progress report that Luke gives to us in uh, the book of Acts, the third of seven uh, different progress reports. And that tells us that he's closed a section of the book. And it's important to note the peace that came upon the church when Paul left because that Jewish antagonism was very hard for the church to deal with. Now, as Peter, verse 32, went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So now Luke picks up the story of Peter uh, once again. The last time we saw him was in uh, chapter 8, where he was dealing with Simon the sorcerer and then traveling back to Jerusalem and preaching the gospel in the different towns along the way throughout Samaria. And uh, you, it's important to see here that Peter went here and there among them all. This tells us that he had apparently a traveling ministry. It's just that the book of Acts doesn't record much about it. It wasn't key or strategic in the advance or the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman world. It probably was somewhat extensive because Paul alludes to it when he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 about Peter taking along a believing wife on his missionary travels. But it just isn't the focus of the book of Acts. But here Luke picks up the story again of Peter because we need to see that great power is upon him from God before he goes to the Gentiles to preach the gospel to them. So that we would know that this was something that God was doing. Now, it tells us in verse 36, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there in Lydda, sent two men urging him, please come to us without delay. So this is how Peter got to Joppa. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Peter, of course, emulates Christ. He he puts the people outside. He goes in. He prays for Tabitha. This is very much like what Jesus had done in Mark chapter 5 and in the other Gospels as well with Jairus, the ruler of the synagogues, 
little daughter, 12-year-old little girl, put the doubters outside and like Elijah and Elisha before them, you know, went into the room and prayed for this woman. And she comes back to life. She revives. Peter, obviously, is being prepared to reach the Gentile world for the first reason that God was with him in a special way, as is evident in the healing of Aeneas and the resurrection or the resuscitation of Tabitha. Also, he's being drawn by God nearer to a Gentile area. And he's staying with a tanner, which normally would be a ceremonially unclean person and thing to do. But Peter is growing more comfortable. God is preparing him to preach the gospel to the Gentile world. So at this point, we're about 10 years in to the story of the book of Acts and the spread of the gospel throughout the world. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.